0: Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. Well, we are continuing in our series God of, as we attempt to understand and and discover together who this Jesus is. And today we're talking about a God of peace, that Jesus is actually this this God that, that, that created this unbelievable peace, but the ways in which he did it were really different. They weren't the the normal ways that we think in which peace comes about. We've talked about that God is a God of love. We've talked that God is a God of mercy. We've talked that God is a God of healing, and God is a God of miracles, and God is a God of power. And now we're in this space where God is a God of peace. And it strikes me a little bit that this is a really appropriate topic for our day and age, right? That, that, that peace is one of those things that just seems to be absent. It's one of those things that's really hard to grasp a hold of. I, I don't know about you, but we're full and ripe of a place and of a time where peace is really absent. Where we're caught in all of these super tense conversations, where there are opposing sides and opposing viewpoints that never want to give an inch in any way, shape, or form, and all we are left with is this just like beating of the heads, left and right, and there's no unity, there's no togetherness, there's no peace, that seems to be where we're caught. I think a lot of it happens oftentimes online, honestly, and that's where I find myself to be in the most places where I'm just like, oh my goodness, where I want to beat my head up against the wall at the things that I read other people say. And I know they want to do the same with me, where they just want to beat their heads against the wall, where, where name throwing gets tossed out. I was called Satan at least a hundred times this week by a couple of people. One person in particular, right? Because of the conversations and the, the disagreements that we have in terms of politics. Uh, the disagreements that we have on positions of things. Tense conversations left and right. Uh, oftentimes it happens at the holidays around the dining room table with family because everybody has the crazy uncle, right? Everybody has the crazy uncle that you're just like, oh, please just stop. Just stop. And it makes you wonder, how on earth do we get beyond this? How on earth do we begin to move forward into a new way when all we're left with are these really tense conversations that don't seem to go anywhere, that, that you and I don't really see a way out of, but are yet just caught in this cycle, a spin cycle, if you will, of tense intercity. It's a fun word. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter ten. A really interesting conversation where, in Luke chapter ten, starting in verse twenty-five, there's this man who comes up to Jesus. Just a man who is a religious like expert. Okay, like that's what he does. He just. He knows, he knows what the law says. He knows what the law is about. And he comes and he begins to ask Jesus this question. He says, what must I do? How do these things work? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law say? What are the things that people have been talking about and debating for years upon years upon years? This is not a calm conversation. The man approaches Jesus with this very terse question. Jesus, I've been seeing what you've been doing, and I've I've heard the things that you have been talking about, and you know, there's a lot of people in this world and in this place that disagree with you, that we actually don't like you. You have gone around, you have broken the Sabbath, you have broken our laws, you have broken some of our traditions. We're not really happy about that, so, What must must I do then to inherit eternal life? What does this look like for me, Jesus? It's not a calm conversation. It's tense. It's ripe with tense overtones of anger and frustration, maybe even a little bit of hatred towards Jesus. And He says, what must I do? You tell me then. What do I got to do? And Jesus' response is, well, what's written down? What's written in the law? And the man says, well, to love God and to love people, to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it. That's it. Jesus agrees with the man who is frustrated, who is angry. He says, yeah, that's it. How many times have you been caught in those conversations where you finally, you, you just agree with somebody? You're like, yeah. Right. Like, yeah, that's the, that's the conversation. Like I'm good. And they don't want to stop. They say, well, I'm not done with you. And they take another step towards you. Right. And you're like, whoa, hold on now. Just a second. That's exactly what this guy does. He says, well, pff. well, if that's the case, what if, if that's what it takes for me to inherit eternal life, then, then Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. You agreed with me. Well, who is that? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus, in this really like fascinating stroke of genius, doesn't answer his question. Like he tells him a story. He jumps into this parable of the good Samaritan, which might be one of the more or most famous parables of all the parables. Right? Because like this is the one that like TV shows are based off of. Right? Like at the end of Seinfeld, right? As Seinfeld ends as a TV show, the last two episodes, the ones that got panned the most for being like the worst Seinfeld episodes ever, it's all about the Good Samaritan law. Right? It's all about how George and Elaine and Kramer and Jerry were terrible human beings because they wouldn't help another. They wouldn't help their neighbor, right? Like it's it's like one of the more famous parables of them all. And here is Jesus, and he says, "Well, this one day, a man, a Samaritan man, or or um, a man was walking down from Jerusalem, which is pretty easy to do because Jerusalem like sits atop like 2,500 feet above sea level. So any direction you go, you're going down." right? Like you're walking downhill. It's kind of an easy stroll to get to Jerusalem. is kind of a, a hike up a hill, right? It's, not, it, it, it's, it's worse than hiking up Queen Anne Hill, right? Like it's pretty rough. So they're walking down towards Jericho, which is about like 17, 18, 19 miles, okay? Like he's walking down through this, but the whole journey down to Jericho is fraught with like danger because it's kind of like a crevice like it's it's like this this like there's rocks along the sides and people would get robbed left and right on this road like thieves and robbers would kind of hide out behind like 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 these rocks and then they would jump out Right, like they jump out and they like mug you and rob you, take your stuff and run away. Like it was a really common occurrence that took place in this crag and in this in this valley towards Jericho. And and here is this man, Jesus says, walking down from Jerusalem into Jericho, and he gets mugged. Like he gets beat the tar out of him. Okay, so like he is left within like an inch of his life. Jesus says the man was left naked. They didn't even leave him with any clothes on his back, right? Like he is left completely naked. They have beaten him. They have taken all of his money. So he is this bloodied, bruised, swollen mess just laying there on the ground. Jesus says that a priest walks by. A pastor sees him on the side of the road and notices that like, oh, this is a problem, like this man needs some help. But what does it say he does? He walks around him, he walks to the other side and is like, yeah, can't do anything there, can't touch that guy. Now here's the reason why, here's the reason why, because like according to the law, like you couldn't touch a man who was bleeding or who was dead like that because then you were ritually unclean and so the priest then wouldn't have been able to do his job in the temple right if he had touched him if he had gone near him especially if the man was dead right and by all intents and purposes you could say like the man probably looked dead and so he just kind of saw him and was like Woo, okay we're gonna walk around this and i can't tell you how many times i've actually walked around people right how many how many times i have seen people laying on the on the side of the road like like uh, getting down near pike especially right like there's just people sitting and laying on on box cartons or those sorts of things and i've seen them and i i've, I've seen i've seen some pretty nasty stuff and i've just like kind of walked by cuz i just don't know what to do right like you see it and you're just like i don't know it's kind of what was happening here we've all done that We've all walked past people. We've all sidestepped them and gone around them. I've never stepped over a person, (laughs) right? But that's what Jesus says the priest does, is he walks around him and keeps going. The next man is a Levite. He says, the Levite notices the man and sees him. The Levites were also like religious clergy, like religious people in the system of uh, of Judaism. Would see him and be like, okay, we're going to walk around him as well. Both of these men are Jewish men. The man on the ground is assumed to be a Jewish man. They will not help their fellow brother, their fellow countryman, their fellow person, let alone their fellow man. But Jesus says there was a Samaritan man That notices him. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week that like Samaritans and Jewish people like did not get along in any way, shape, or form. Like they hated each other. And it wasn't just a it it, it was it wasn't just a hatred based on where they lived or, or socioeconomic status or anything like that. It was a racial hatred. Like, the Jewish people saw Samaritans as half-breeds, as dogs, as animals. They wanted nothing to do with them. And Samaritan people, in turn, hated Jewish people. They're like, they're terrible people because they think this of us. So like there was this great like racial tension, this great racial strife between the two of them. And Jesus says, here's this Samaritan man. And there's a Jewish man on the ground. And the Samaritan man dismounts his donkey. And he goes and he grabs the Jewish man and he picks him up, and he puts him on his donkey, right? Like, he, he does the work. I, I can not imagine, like, if the man is that, in that bad of shape, right? Like, if he is knocked completely unconscious, right? Like, it, it, to where he's not responding to anybody. Like, as the, as the priest walks by, and if he thinks he's dead, it's because the man's not saying anything, right? He's just laying there silent. So, this this Samaritan man has to go and grab him and kind of pick him up gingerly and, and carefully, not knowing if there's like broken ribs, broken bones. Like you don't know if this man was just kicked the tar out of him or not, but he has to pick him up and then lay him on top of his donkey in such a way that the man is going to be safe and secure in that location and then walk him downhill The rest of the way to Jericho right like that's just not an easy walk that's not an easy thing to do but here he is taking him downhill into this space and then the Samaritan finds an inn finds a hotel for him puts him in that place and then bandages his wounds Using wine and oil, which is like a really soothing, like that's like, that's like uh, primitive first aid sort of stuff, right? Where like he's taking care of all of the man's wounds, bandaging up his head, bandaging up his arms, his hands, his legs, his feet. But first, he's touching the man, right? Like he's touching him kindly and gently to make sure that he's okay in these places cleansing his wounds putting wine and oil all over him bandaging wrapping him up then he goes to the innkeeper the 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 guy that runs the hotel and says here's two denarii which is the equivalent of two days wages like two whole days of wages which which is kind of a little like like we can't really say that that like that doesn't equate to us today, right? Like, oh, so like two days' wages, if you make like $50,000 a year, two days' wages would be like 250 bucks, right? $260, right? Like, it doesn't kind of equate that way, right? Because the amount of money this man gave was not just to put him up in a hotel for two days, because I don't know about you, but $250 doesn't really do a good job of putting you up in a hotel, right? But like two hundred fifty dollars is two, or two denarius, two full days' wages, which is enough to put him up and then to care for any needs, any food, anything that this man needs for those two days. He says until I return, and then if for some reason he strikes up a tab that's much larger than that like if for some reason he's just spending more money because like he needs a, an actual doctor because he's that wounded because he's that hurt because he's actually nearer to death than the man thought he says i'll pay for it i'll pay for it this is kind of the story that Jesus lays out for this man that is just antagonistic that is tense and terse and angry this is the story that he lays out for him and Jesus flips the script Jesus flips the script and says, who was the neighbor? Who was the, like, who showed the most love? Which man showed love? Here's what's so great about that. Is the story starts with the man saying, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus finishes the story and says, who are you showing love to? Who is the one that shows the most love in the story? And the Samaritan man, or the the religious law, the, the, the religious expert, looks at Jesus, and this is what he says, the one who showed him love. What's so fascinating about that, he couldn't even say, he couldn't identify the man the way that Jesus did. He he didn't even say the Samaritan, right? Jesus had a story where it was like the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. Three really strong distinctions. Three really strong classifications. And the religious expert, if it had been the priest, would have said, oh, the priest did, right? Like, if you're asked one of those kinds of questions where you have three things, you'd be like, oh, it was, oh, of course it was the priest that did that. If it was a chicken and a duck and a cow, oh, it was the cow, right? Like, it's just, that's how you would answer that question. You wouldn't be like, oh, it was that one. But that's how he responds, because his hatred is still so strong towards the Samaritan people. The one who showed him love, that one, that one. it's such a fascinating fascinating story because jesus has completely flipped the script on this on this man and jesus looks at him in the midst of this terse conversation and says go and do likewise go do that go break down those racial barriers Go be a person of peace. Go be a person that shows love and mercy wherever you go. Go and do that. That. I don't know if you've seen the uh, Black Panther movie or not. But I'm going to assume you have. I'm not going to spoil it. But at the very end of the movie, King Chala." has one of like, the most brilliant phrases. He says this, the wise build bridges, the foolish build barriers. In the midst of peace, in the midst of creating a place and a space of peace, this is what it looks like. This is what Jesus is talking about is that, that, that you, religious expert, you, religious man, that are here to just challenge me, to push back on me, to knock me back and try and make yourself better or look better or look stronger. What we need to do here is we actually need to build some bridges. Go take care of those people. Go love those people that you think aren't worthy, that you think are terrible, that you think are half-breeds, that you think are dogs, that you think are not actually human beings in any way, shape, or form. Go build bridges, because what you're doing right now is foolish. And Jesus kinda calls him out on that. He calls him out on the foolishness of how he is acting, the foolishness of how he is living, the foolishness of how he is being. Because the wise build bridges, but the foolish build barriers. Jesus is saying that what we are to do as people, not only is to go and do likewise, but to be a people that step into those spaces, that step into those places regularly, continually, because every single person is worthy of love, because every single person has been created in the image of God. Brennan Manning is one of my favorite Authors. He passed away a few years ago uh, and he, he wrote this. He says, The love of Christ embraces all without exception. Uh, all His grace is his autobiography. Like it's, it's, it's like a memoir of sorts. As he talks about how terrible of a person he was, all of the horrible things that he did throughout his life, and, and how he really truly began to understand what grace really meant. And he came up with this conclusion. He says, the love of Christ embraces all. He he would say, even me, the alcoholic who left God, who left the church and who did terrible things throughout my life. The love of Christ embraces all without exception because all is grace, all is love. And Jesus asks us over and over and over again to take that step forward into this new realm, into this new place, into this new reality. At the beginning of this month, I had an opportunity to drive overnight, which was really crazy, into Montgomery, Alabama. I had been in Knoxville for a few days, and I, I went to Montgomery, Alabama, the five and a half hour drive into Montgomery, Alabama, because I wanted to see the, um, the, the new uh, memorial that was there that was built for the, the lynchings that have taken place over the course of our history, but really kind of... It has a certain time frame that it looks at, and there's also a museum there, and there's a memorial. And while I was there, I, I got into a conversation with one of the docents and asked him, like, what, what else should I do here? I've got a couple more hours before I have to go catch a flight. And he said, oh, you should go see Dr. King's Parsonage. I was like, Oh, that sounds like a really cool idea. I will go do that. And so I drove like the mile away, right? Like I went to go see um, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, and then I drove to the to the parsonage that, that King lived at. And I got I got to go th- on a tour through the entire house. It was quite beautiful. It was quite wonderful. Uh, but on the porch here, what you is this hole? Like right on the porch. This was the house that Dr. King's. Uh, this was the house that was bombed. The, the house where, where Coretta and his, his young daughter were in the house at the time in the living room. And the bomb, that's the hole that is left from the bomb. It blew out all the windows. Nobody was hurt. But it was a bomb that was set off. Over the course of like the three days leading up to this, King had started to receive a ton of, of death threats. Uh, he was receiving what he, what he said was about 30 to 40 a day at all hours of the night. This was in the midst of him uh, kind of leading the way on the Montgomery bus boycott. And he's here in this place and this bomb goes off. One, one, of the, one, of the, one of the calls he got said, you had better leave this house and this town in three days or we will kill you and your family. Three days later, this bomb goes off in their living room. It was the day after, or it, it was the, the Sunday after the bombing had taken place and Dr. King was giving this, this really beautiful and amazing sermon about like what it meant to love enemies, about what it meant to take care of the people that were around him, about what it meant, what it meant to create a place of peace. Three days after the bombing, love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. Love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. If we want peace, if we want to see peace exist, Jesus is saying that the way in which peace happens to this religious expert, the way in which peace happens is by loving our neighbor as ourselves, just like the guy said. But that is not located simply in those who look like us, those who act like us, those who agree with us, but it's everyone. It's opening our arms to the people that would seek to do us harm and showing them love in some way. Because love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. See, this is the purpose of the church. This is what we have been called to be, what we have been called to do, that the purpose, the task of the church is to be the irrefutable demonstration and proof that God is love. The task of the church, our job, yours and my role in this world, in this place, is to be the irrefutable demonstration. That no one can look at who we are and what we are about and say, oh, they don't love, they don't love me. We are to be the irrefutable demonstration and proof that God is love. Love that everything that we do, that all that we are is about this people that step into being a people of love at every turn, and in that, in that, not only do we reveal who this God is that we worship, that we love, that we adore, but we begin to create a way of peace, because this is the way of peace. Love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. And our job, our role as a church, our role as a people, is to demonstrate this love so irrefutably that people can't but wonder. People can't do anything else but see that God is love. And in that, we find a God of peace who has opened his arms to all, who has created a way of peace for us that we may step into and that we may be. We're a new church in this city, and we've talked a lot about like, you belong here. It's the banner at the very back, like the minute you walk out, like you can't not see it, right? It's big, you belong here. We're trying to create a way of peace in this world, a way of peace in this city, a way of peace in this neighborhood by showing and demonstrating that this God is a God of love. It's why we do the things that we do, whether it's through Tent City or soon we're going to be trying to do some things in the neighborhood as well through, through the Queen Anne days that's coming up in a couple of weeks and, and also it's like, like hosting just a movie night because we want to create an inclusive nature to who we are as a church that people can see and experience and understand that this God is a God of love. But they can't see it if they don't know us. They can't know us if they don't see us. And they can't see us if we're not doing anything. So we have to be a church of action, a church that is carving a new way of peace in this neighborhood, in this city, and in this world. That's what we're inviting everyone to be a part of. That's what we're inviting you to be a part of, is that we can create this place to be a people of peace, a people of love, to turn everyone into friends around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, and we thank you for the work that he does in and through us, the stories that he gives, the examples that he shares with us. Father, may we be those people that truly do go and do likewise. May we be people of love who create ways of peace in this world and in this neighborhood around us. It's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.